Thanks, David, for your prayer and, uh, and your welcome. I love the story about a man who took his son to an evening service. It was a fairly liturgical kind of church and all during the service, um, the son asked his, asked his dad, now, why does the choir do that or why does the minister do that? And he explained it the best he could. And then come time for the sermon, the minister took his watch off and put it on the side of a pulpit. What does that mean, Dad? Uh, absolutely nothing, son, nothing at all. <laughs> and then there's a story of another church where a minister got up and he said, has anybody got a clock? And they said, no, but we've got a calendar. <laughs> I know you want to go to supper and I not only looked at my clock, I think I know when I started. <laughs> Friends, I want to talk about church tonight. I want to talk about church because I think that um, the gathering of God's children week by week, like you are gathering here tonight, is one of the greatest joys and greatest privileges that men and women and boys and girls can have. A friend of mine who was quite a wag um, one Sunday saw a friend of his or one of the members of his congregation. He said, Oh, Don, I'm sorry. I won't be in church tonight, but I'll be with you in spirit. And Don, as quick as a flash, said, Brother, I'd rather have ten bodies than a thousand spirits any day. There's something that's really encouraging when we take the time to gather. It's a way for us to show our love to God. It's a way for us to show our love for one another. Friends, tonight what I want to do, I want to talk about the privilege of gathering. I want to talk about discipline to make sure that we do it and I want to talk about thoughtfulness when we do gather. So the privilege, the discipline and thoughtfulness when we gather. When David asked me the question, how did I become a Christian? Um, in 1964 I mentioned that it was through the, the winsomeness and the commitment of both our ministers and those who taught me in Sunday school and youth group that really encouraged me to become a Christian. I often say to people, I learned about the authority of the Scriptures, for example, a long time before I even knew that there was such a doctrine because it never entered my mind that the Scriptures were anything other than authoritative because of the way my minister and my youth group leaders and my Sunday school teachers taught me. It was relevant to their lives and it was authoritative. Gathering together gives us an extraordinary opportunity of encouraging one another and growing ourselves. But there are pressures, aren't there, in terms of gathering together. There's just plain busyness. Church, of course, taking the time to gather and what an encouragement it is to me to recognise faces that were here this morning. Let me say, keep that habit going. It's terrific to see people who have gathered twice on a Sunday. But to gather on a Sunday is a real act of faith where we're saying to the world around about us, we can get done what we need to do in the rest of the time we want to gather with God's people. And of course there's the constant pressure of what I call selfism where it's very tempting not to come to church because we feel our needs aren't being met. How often do I meet people who say to me, I don't go to church, it didn't meet my needs. But friends, we don't go to church to have our needs met. 
We go to church to worship, to honour the living God and to meet the needs of our brothers and sisters. And then paradoxically, wonderfully, um, God meets our needs as a byproduct because we're going to honour him and meet the needs of others. Or there's just plain slackness that can keep us from church, a laziness, or even our evangelical theology, which rightly says we ought to read our Bibles at home, that we ought to pray at home, and we think to ourselves, well, why do I need to bother going to church? As David reminded us earlier on, although being a Christian has to be a personal decision. It's never a private matter. It's always a public aspect of it, a corporate aspect of it. And of course God would want us to overcome our slackness and gather so we can have opportunities for correction and for building up the brothers and sisters. I want to take you to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10. Forget what page it was, 1200 and something. Is that right? 1208. Hebrews chapter 10. Now, Hebrews was, of course, written to a group of Hebrew converts. Many of them would have been converted on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. And they had started well. In fact, they had seemed to have started brilliantly and had gone along wonderfully as they identified with Christ and Christ's people. We read about that in verses 32 and 33. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and to persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathised with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. You get a picture, don't you, of what it must have been like to have been a Christian there in Jerusalem in those early days. Public insults. They stood side by side with one another in the persecution. They even identified with each other so much that they visited each other in prison and they were glad to have the confiscation of their property. But yet, 30 years or so later, as the author of the Hebrews writes, they seem to be falling away. Verse 35, So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere. Now remember, it was of course the Lord Jesus who said to us, He or she who endures to the end, will be saved. There's to be a perseverance in the Christian life. And so the deliberate sin of verse 26, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, I think will certainly include the not meeting together of verse 25. See, for them to meet together was a real testimony that they had chosen this group of believers over against the temple. This fulfilment of from Judaism as distinct from the shadows of Judaism. And it seems that they were wanting to go back into the shadows 
and neglect the Lord Jesus. And the way they neglected the Lord Jesus was neglecting to meet together with the people of the Lord Jesus. And I'd have to say, as someone who's been a pastor for, well, almost 35 years now, that not gathering with God's people is the thin end of a wedge in terms of drifting away and of wandering away from the Christian faith. Now, I've got to come to you, as I said, you've probably picked it up, I hope you have, that I'm somebody who loves going to church, that is, the local gathering, not because I'm a bishop. In fact, it's harder going to church as a bishop in one sense because you've got to go to many different churches. There's nothing greater than being the pastor of one church and being a member of one church where you gather with the same people and where you can be ministered to in the same way. But no, as somebody who loves gathering with God's children because of the blessings that that brings, I often say to people that ministers, what is it, a paid to be good and you're good for nothing. One of the reasons I nearly didn't become a minister was because I feared people would think I only went to church because I had to or only taught the Bible because I was being paid to do it. No, no, no I love going to church because I love God's people because I've experienced the blessings of living God. But I've got to say to you, there are hundreds of times in the last years when I haven't felt like going to church. But there's never been a Sunday when I've gone and I haven't been glad that I went. Larry Crabb, the American psychologist, has a wonderful one-liner where he says, I'd rather be a hypocrite to my feelings than to my purposes. And my purpose is to gather with God's people even if my feelings say, I don't feel like doing it. Back in the 1970s in Sydney, there was a, probably here in England too, I guess, there was a time when people would say, it would be hypocritical to go to church or it would be hypocritical to read your Bible if you didn't feel like doing it. Thankfully, we didn't believe that because many of us would never have read our Bibles or gone to church. What's a greater work of the Holy Spirit? To read your Bible when you don't feel like it or to read your Bible when you do feel like it? To go to church when you don't feel like it or to go to church when you do feel like it? Of course, it's a greater work of the Spirit is when you do it when you don't feel like it. And what I think I'm trying to say to you is simply this. It doesn't matter if you feel like going to church or not. Your purpose as a believer is to gather together with God's children. And I can promise you, I can promise you that if you obey your purpose, not your feeling, and go, God will bless you richly. It's the same in marriage. There are times when Chris and I might have had a bit of an argument And I don't feel like being the one to take the initiative and saying, hey honey, let's sit down and work out what the difficulty is. But I tell you what, I'm always glad when I've done that that I've obeyed my purpose, not my feeling. Because our feelings catch up. 
And certainly in terms of going to church, I've discovered that going is the key thing. And as I said before, there's never been a Sunday when I've gone that I've been sorry because God has blessed me richly in doing so. Let me put 10.25 in its context. That's that great verse, let's not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. I want to strengthen your love for one another. I want you to rekindle your love for one another if you've become slack. You know, in the United States, I heard this about 10 years ago, that regular church attendance is considered to be one week in every three. You can't build a church like that. In Australia, we have a little saying called Stabo, subject to a better offer. Do you have that here in the UK? You know, you'll go to something, but Stabo, subject to a better offer. Friends, let me tell you, there's no better offer than going to church with God's people. Never put anything above your responsibility of encouraging your brothers and sisters. Now, there are four exhortations in these few verses. They're all addressed to Christians. These are in verses 19 to 25. And that's where it opens up with that most wonderful, wonderful passage about us having confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of the Lord Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. Here's this great passage in Hebrews that reminds us we have a great high priest. We don't have priests anymore. That's in the Old Testament. They were fulfilled by the Lord Jesus. And we can come any time, any place, not any way. We've got to come repentantly and humbly, but we can come to God through the Lord Jesus. He is the one who rules over the house of God. And um, the author of the Hebrews is reminding them of how Christ had swept away Judaism and all that they could see and all that they could smell in Jerusalem in terms of the sacrifices. That these people, these Christian people, had no temple but heaven itself. No sacrifice but the one completed sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. No priest but the Lord Jesus. And as such, they were members of God's household. And so he's saying to them, don't regress. Don't go back into the shadows. Don't go back to the temple. You see, it would have been very easy for them to do that. Economic livelihood threatened if they were Christians. It would have been very easy for them just to have gone back to Judaism. Whereas... They had been called, as it were, to leave Judaism and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he gives them these four exhortations. The first one's in 22. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. What he's saying to us there is, Brothers and sisters, everything has been done in order for us to enjoy a rich and living fellowship with the living God. 
and it's all been accomplished through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we enjoy that full assurance with no guilt. It's good to be a Christian, isn't it? There is nothing like it in the whole of the world. It is so unique. It's not a religion, but it's faith in the Lord Jesus. So full of comfort and so different to every other religion. Here is a way to God which God has established for us himself on the basis not of our works but upon the basis of the person and the work of his beloved son. All has been done and all because of the historic work of Christ done on our behalf and of the subjective work of the Holy Spirit who opened our eyes and our minds that we might receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Now why did he need to keep on exhorting them of that wonderful truth? Well, I suspect because like us, they were slow, they were still sinful and so easily deflected and defeated by Satan. Like any good pastor, the author of the Hebrews would take them back to the Lord Jesus. I don't know who chose the hymns tonight, but that was my favourite hymn, Before the Throne of God Above. But we just sang, and I've got in my notes, second verse, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of my guilt within, upwards I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Everything has been done for us to enter into God's presence. And then the second exhortation in verse 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess for he who promised is faithful. Here is an exhortation that would keep us from caving in to the world's pressures around. For the Hebrew Christians, there would have been lots of their friends saying, where's your priest? We can see ours, look at them. They're dressed up, look at them. Where's your temple? Look at our temple. You can see it up there in the hill. Where's your sacrifice? You can smell ours all the time. And these Christian people would have been thrown back upon the Lord Jesus who died once and for all for them, who had risen from the dead and who was seated at the Father's right hand and who had established a way, not into some earthly temple, but into heaven itself. And the pressure was on them to go back into the shadows. But The author of the Hebrews would say, no, 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 we have Christ crucified. We have Christ risen from the dead. And for us, who are believers, what are the pressures for us? Well, sometimes we actually believe our non-Christian friends. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Half right, isn't it? Going to church won't make you a Christian. 
that if you're a Christian, of course, you'll want to go to church. And sometimes because of our own slackness or perhaps because we're embarrassed sometimes by the public persona of the church, I mean, the vicar of Dibley (laughs) and those kinds of programs, we think, oh, do I really want to identify? And we can be tempted too to think, oh, well, I can be a Christian privately and just tempted to drift away. But listen to what he says. Listen to what he says. Hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. For he who promised is faithful. Brothers and sisters, every time you come to church, every time you leave your university college, they'll all know that you're here tonight. Every time you leave your house and walk or drive to church, people know that you're here It is a marvellous testimony to the watching world that we are Christians. We go to church as a testimony. We go to church as a testimony that we trust God, that we believe that that Paul and others who preach from this pulpit, that their words are more important than the words you might read in the Times or the Observer, if I got it right, or, or the Telegraph. That when you come to church and you've made the decision to come and gather with your brothers and sisters rather than go to the, the party or whatever that's on, you're making the statement that you're trusting the living God and you're wanting to contribute to the people of God. You're making the statement that the people around about you are the main game. That the people around about you are the people that you want to build up and you want to be known as as being part of. And then the third exhortation is in verse 24. Let's consider how we may spur one another on towards love and to good deeds. That very famous theologian, Woody Allen, well, not really, but... He has a good little saying where he says about 80% of life is just turning up. Not bad actually, is it, when you think about it? About 80% of life is about turning up. And if you add 20% turning up intentionally, you've got a pretty good mix. And that's what the author's saying here. Let's consider how we can spur one another on to love and good deeds. It dovetails in with our Lord's words. In John 13, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now let me suggest to you that that love for one another, if it's going to be more than sentimentality or something less, it's got to be something intentional, something that we think about. And the author of the Hebrews is saying, guys, when you gather... Consider how you're going to gather. Let's be honest. We can gather together and we can think to ourselves, same old faces. Or we can gather and say, Lord, thank you that I can gather once again with my brothers and sisters. I want to make a difference in somebody's life tonight when I gather. There's an intentionality about what the author is saying to us. How do we do that? Well, let me suggest listening to one another. 
We have great opportunities, don't we, of talking to one another, of being able to touch each other's lives. And it really begins by listening to one another. One of the great things about church is there's so many people we want to talk to, isn't there? But that can be a danger too because it might just be that we're talking to somebody and they're just about to pour their heart out. They've had a rotten week. Things have gone wrong and they're about to pour their heart out. We see our friend across the room and we say, oh, I've just got to go and talk to them. We fail to be considerate. We have wonderful opportunities of building each other up. And you see, to be here every week is so important. One of our friends makes the effort to come to church and they turn up. They don't know anybody except for you and they're so relieved to see you here. They think, that was pretty good. I'll give it a go next week. But you're off at a barbecue somewhere or watching the soccer on telly and they look around for you and you're not here. And they don't know anybody. And they go away thinking, well, perhaps church isn't that important. Not so important for my friend. Can you see the privilege it is to gather and to gather considerately? Or you're talking to somebody and you find out as you're talking to them that their daughter has just left her husband and their heart broken. Or you find that somebody else, their aged mum, has just died. Or you find out from somebody else as they open their heart that things are going really tough at work. And during the week you've been praying for them. And on the Sunday... As you go out, you make sure that you are talking with them again. You say, how are things going at work? How are things going with your daughter? I've been praying for you. When that happens to you, it's, it's uplifting, isn't it? All because you've been considerate and you've been intentional about gathering and you've considered how you can stir one another up to love and good deeds. One of the great things about churches that are growing is that they have small groups. Let me suggest to you that you use the 10-minute rule. You know what the 10-minute rule is? That you're not allowed to talk to anybody from your home group or small group for 10 minutes at least until you make sure that everybody else is being spoken to. When you can see them on Tuesday night or Wednesday afternoon or whenever your small group meets. The greatest and most important people in a congregation are the sheepdogs. The sheepdogs are the people who wander around and make sure that the newcomers got somebody to talk to. That the lonely people are brought into a group. The people who are new are brought into a group. Friends, gathering is an extraordinary privilege and God lumps us together 
He lumps us together, young and old. He lumps us together, people from different backgrounds, warts and all, so that we can grow. One of the ways we'll grow is as we come to worship and we say, Lord, how can I touch that other person's life? Daniel Yanklevich was a research professor of sociology at New York University. He said, by concentrating day and night on your feelings, potentials, needs, wants and desires, and by learning to assert them more freely, you do not become a freer, more spontaneous, more creative self. You become a narrower, more self-centred, more isolated one. You do not grow, you shrink. One of God's gracious purposes in gatherings together in the congregations is so we don't shrink, but so we grow. So we're looking out and asking the question, Lord, how can I touch my brother's life? How can I touch my sister's life? And it's not rocket science. It's about listening And it's about being thoughtful in terms of building that other person up. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said the greatest gift we can give to each other is to listen. And that's one of the geniuses of the church. And then finally, verse 25. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. The tragedy amongst this group of people was that they were building up a habit which was a bad one and it was a habit of not meeting together. For us, let's make sure it's the other way. The habit of meeting the habit of listening, the habit of looking out for each other, the habit of being considerate towards each other. It means that we will not, as he says in 2.1, drift away, but rather we'll grow. Verse 22, God wants us to draw near to him. Verse 25, he wants us to draw near to one another. He wants us to draw near to one another so we might encourage each other. It's a little bit like having a running partner if you want to keep fit. It's always easier, isn't it, if you know somebody's going to knock on the door at 6.30 in the morning. It's a lot easier. It's a lot harder to to pike out, isn't it, if you know they're going to knock on the door and run with you. And that's one of the reasons God wants us to keep on meeting to each other. When I meet... When I set aside two or three or four hours, I'm saying, God, I trust you. I trust you to meet my needs in the rest of the time. And I'm saying to you, my brothers and sisters, I love you so much that I want to see you build up. I love you more than my golf. I love you more than my work. I want to see you grow. Or to put it another way, we have made a judgment that Jesus is Lord and because he's Lord, he's going to be central in our lives. And because he's Lord, we're living for that day 
For he says, and all the more as you see the day approaching, that day of vindication, that day when the Lord Jesus will come in all his glory and be honoured by all. And as we gather like this, we are saying to the watching world, there is a Lord in heaven who will be honoured on that day when he returns and I'm getting into practice doing it today. I'm wanting to honour him. I'm getting into practice for that great gathering. Can you imagine what it will be like? Revelation 7, people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation gathered around the throne of the Lord Jesus. That's what we're doing now in embryo. We, we are saying that there is a day when reality will be seen to be reality. Jesus will be seen to be Lord. And when we gather like this, we are saying, He is the one in whom we have put all our hope. He is the one we are honouring. And we are going to honour his people because we want to see them grow and be there at that day. Friends, as we do that, we'll be kept from sin. In the next chapter, in verse 25, it says that Moses, Moses chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. It will keep us from shrinking back in verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back, but of those who believe and are saved. It will mean that we will be recognising that grace of God to us and seeking with all our heart to exercise God's grace as we look out and consider how we can spur one another on to love and good deeds. Somebody once said, there's not a lot that I can do with believers, but I can do a lot with disciples. And disciples are disciplined men and women. And one of the great disciplines of being a Christian, one of fundamental disciplines of being a Christian, is to make sure that we gather. And then as we gather, to make sure that we gather considerately. And brothers and sisters, as we do that, where we can receive God's grace afresh week by week, we get that opportunity of showing that grace week by week and wonderful things happen. We are transformed. God is glorified and the brothers and sisters are built up. And as it happened for this 17-year-old, those who are seeking can wonderfully find. Let me encourage you to keep going what you've got going. Keep on meeting Keep on honouring the Lord Jesus with your lips but also in the way that you show consideration to building one another up. Let me pray. Our God in heaven, you are very gracious. Through the Lord Jesus, we can come into your presence boldly and confidently. 
We thank you that we have been able to come into your presence this evening and we pray that as we go, we will go very conscious of you having met with us. We thank you too, Heavenly Father, that you give us running partners, brothers and sisters. And we pray that you might help us to be the kind of Christian men and women who are concerned for building each other up. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that in so doing, we might have that great privilege of showing forth the grace that you've shown to us. We thank you, Lord, for this gathering tonight and pray that you might keep us amongst those who keep on considering how we can stir one another up to love and good deeds until that great day when the Lord Jesus will return in all his glory.